We have come to a pivotal point in Jewish history, in Israel's history, in the Bible, because now that Solomon has stepped into eternity, we come to the time of the divided kingdom for Israel. They were, Saul was their first king around 1100 BC. Then eventually David became the king, but only part for part of the tribe. So there was a divided kingdom for seven years when David first became king, the great King David. Then the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes were unified. Then David passed on and Solomon became king and he reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon stepped in eternity, but with all that great sin in Solomon's life down the backstretch of his life, God had sent the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam, one of Solomon's most capable administrators in his kingdom, and told him that he would be receiving 10 tribes of Israel to be king over them, but he would always, God would always have a remnant with the tribe of Judah in the south because of God's faithfulness to David and David's faithfulness to God. And God had promised an everlasting kingdom through David, which ultimately is fulfilled through Jesus Christ coming as the son of David through Mary, the son of God, and all that. So we now come to a place, 931 BC is when Solomon stepped into eternity, and now Israel is a divided kingdom. And we read this verse by verse on Tuesday night, just going to survey a couple elements of it to set us up for the text tonight. So Jeroboam, who had fled because Solomon wanted to kill him once he heard that God was going to give him the majority of the kingdom once he deceased, he had gone to Egypt. Rehoboam, the names are similar, the son of Solomon had become king to replace Solomon. So Jeroboam had gone into exile, the trusty servant of Solomon, very capable and ambitious. Rehoboam had become king. And so the people went to Rehoboam, the tribes gathered to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon and said, hey, be good to us. We'll be good to you. Your dad was hard on us. Be easy on us and we'll serve you. And Rehoboam sought counsel. And Jeroboam was kind of leading the tribes against Rehoboam in this confrontation over how they'd be governed and what to expect. But then Rehoboam said, give me three days and I'll come back to you. And he sought the counsel of his dad's counselors who gave him good counsel and said, hey, treat these people with respect, be a servant leader, and they'll follow you. They'll, They'll be with you. Just don't Just don't be foolish right now. But then he went to his young friends and said, no, you're the guy, you're the boss. Just tell them you're going to be twice as heavy as your dad was and teach him a lesson because that's what young men do who are powerful and tyrants. And it didn't work. And so the the 10 tribes rejected Rehoboam and they said, we're not going to let you rule over us. You're the house of Judah. We're everything else and we're going to go our way. So eventually those 10 tribes went their way, the northern part of modern Israel and historical Israel, and they would be led by Jeroboam. The southern tribe, Judah, along kind of absorbing, annexing Benjamin with them as well, plus quite a few Levites because the temple that Solomon built was in the southern kingdom area. They were there in the south. So we now have a divided kingdom, and it's like that for hundreds of years until the Syrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity. So this is a whole new timeline in Israel for how things went. And with that background, after Jeroboam, Rehoboam had said he would not do what they wanted, the people said, well, we have nothing with you. And we pick it up in verse 16 tonight after they rejected his reign. And we're told that, the, that it, was the, it came about, the division of Israel came about as a result of the Lord. That was from the Lord. So verse 15 said that. And now in verse 16, we read this account of chapter 12. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, and the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? 
We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, and now see to your own household, David. That would be Judah. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of revenue. He's, he's the IRS. But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. And therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel's been in rebellion, that is the north, against the house of David to this day in the south. Now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, that is from Egypt, they sent for him and called him to the congregation, made him king over all Israel, that is the ten northern tribes. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, they're geographically next to each other, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom of, to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So the plan was to get all the 12 tribes back under one king, Rehoboam. Verse 22, but the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. So this is the background of how we've got the divided kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south. It was a difficult time. There really was no place to go for favorable political governance over you at this time in Israel. We'll see tonight before we're done, as we saw on Tuesday, that Rehoboam was pretty much a nothing king. He was just on the afterglow of everything Solomon did. He didn't do anything great. He is notable here that he, he obeyed the Lord and didn't go up and attack the northern tribes, so he gets some credit there. In the record of his life in the book of Chronicles, which is the book that focuses more on the kings of Judah, this book focuses more on the kings of the north, like Jeroboam. It tells us later on in the crux of his life when the king of Egypt came to take the gold shields that belonged to Solomon, that record is in both this book and Chronicles, that he humbled himself before the Lord and God showed him some mercy because of that. So Rehoboam, there's nothing that stands out in his life for good other than the fact that here he didn't go fight the northern tribes. And later on when Egypt came and took everything from him, he humbled himself before God and found some favor, which just teaches us it's always good to obey the Lord and humble yourself even if you're not that's solid on the things with God. Those are, God will always honor good things in that sense we see from the story of Rehoboam. Jeroboam, it's all bad. He was ambitious. He's tyrannical. And he's just, it's all bad. In fact, it's, it's so bad that future generations will be compared to him. And it's not going to end up good for him, his household, or anything there. So we have these two kings tonight that no matter where you went in Israel at this time, you cannot find and I mentioned this Tuesday, and in the United States of America right now, you can go to certain states where state laws are favorable, the governors are favorable, more favorable toward the things of God and common sense than other states toward the things of God and common sense. We have that choice. You can do that as a U.S. citizen. They didn't have any such choice. We may not have that choice. There's times when you don't even have such a choice. There's times you're just when you're born, when you live, and where you live, and it's just that's just the way it is, and it's just a tough go, and that's the way it can work in life. But it's not so much what happens to us or happens in our timeline, of course, but how we respond, which we'll get to in a moment here on this night. But the reality is the land is in division. And in a difficult time, it always comes back to the choices that we make. 
The choices that political leaders make, Jeroboam chose his things, made his choices. Rehoboam made his choices. One was to act, one was to not act. One was to create false religion. The other one was to not remove things that were contrary to God. They're not very similar, actually, these two guys, other than they're both evil, and that they hated each other. They fought against each other the entire time. Rehoboam would be king for 17 years in the south. Jeroboam would be king for 22 years in the north. And the one thing they agreed on for all the things they hated is they hated each other. And they're in conflict their entire reigns to each other. Like two political parties of the same nation, complete opposite worldviews, although they're both evil, and they just agreed that they don't like each other. Almost like I were told, like Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch didn't like each other, but the one day they agreed is that they both agreed they didn't like Jesus. It's for us in the Gospels. These guys, they're bad kings. Nothing's going to make them good kings other than the things that I mentioned that are said about Rehoboam. A big difference between the two of them, though, is that in the case of Rehoboam, he does have like this safety net because he's in the right family and he's in the family trust and he's in the will. And what I mean by that is God had promised he wouldn't eliminate the tribe of Judah because of his promises to David. So no matter how bad Rehoboam is, his descendants are still going to make it because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come through the descendants of David, through Solomon, through Rehoboam, and this is just the way it is. So he kind of knows that he's like a trust kid. You say like a trust child, like he's still, no matter how bad he is, his family's got a little safety net because he's under the blessings of Solomon and really is under the blessings of David. Financial blessings of Solomon, spiritual blessings of David, and it'll go to his descendants, and we'll see that as we go forward in this book and later on in Chronicles. Jeroboam, not so. He's got no guarantee other than God sent a prophet to him and said, look, I'm giving you the same chance I gave David. You can seek me, obey my word, do what's right, honor me, and I'll bless you, and you'll be a great king of Israel. That's what I'm offering you. But he didn't, have the, he didn't have the David factor, the tribe of Judah factor. He's just like, hey, make good decisions for you and your family. It'll be good for you. If not, it won't be good for you. So really, when you, we looked at these three chapters the other night and we reviewed them tonight, it really comes down to choices, the choices you make as kings, but really the people in the land and the choices they made under those kings and how they carried themselves and what they chose to do or not do. And be, this is important because as we go forward in this book, in the coming weeks and months moving toward Christmas and even into 2 Kings, we're going to have people that are heroes in these books of First and 2 Kings. So we're going to have people that, like Elijah and Elijah, who are a minority but choose to do the right things with the Lord in a difficult time. Most of the characters we're going to see for the next 300 years of Jewish history in these books, they're just, they're not people you're like, yeah, ah, not another king like this. Or as I told my wife the other night, look, I went 55 minutes on Tuesday night because I don't want to see Rehoboam and Jeroboam next Tuesday. I did three chapters because I don't want to see these guys. I want to just go on to the next rest stop on a road trip. I, I got all I wanted them for one night, three chapters. And, but they're here. And they're, what can you do? It's like studying Russian history or U.S. history or European history. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly, and things go in cycles. And these guys, they're yoked together because their names are similar. They're the same, they're the first two of the divided kingdom, and it's a land of division, and it's a division that God allowed. That's important, too. We're told in verse 15, part of what we read, and in what we read, the Lord said, this is of me. 
You know, there's just times there's division in a country, and it's of the Lord. Like Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, woe to whom judgments comes, but they must come, and they do come. And he spoke to a divided nation on a battlefield with some 20,000 men had been slaughtered just before that in the Battle of Gettysburg for three days. There are divisions in families sometimes that just happen. There are divorces that happen that just, some things can be redeemed, some can't. There are people that are removed from ministry that can be redeemed and sometimes they can't. There are things that happen politically in a, in a state, in a city, in a city council, in a school board that, that can be unified and saved and there's divisions that cannot be saved that can be, you, you just, because sometimes you just don't have fe- what, what fellowship is like with darkness. But sometimes it's like you have two good people and there's still a division, like Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. Two wonderful men, great missionary trip. They come back, they have a dispute over what the next team looks like, and there's two different teams. It's a division of the Lord. Vineyard was birthed out of Calvary Chapel because John Wimber went down the street and Chuck gave him a thumbs up because Pastor Chuck was like that. You have two movements now instead of one. This is... This is church history. I mean, John Wesley came out of the Anglican church to become a Methodist and start the Methodism. So you just... Ray Bentley went down the street from Mike McIntosh, if you know your Calvary Chapel history in San Diego. These are not... God, we have to know that God's bigger than this, but this is a division that God allowed. And that's what's important to keep in mind. This is a God-ordained difficulty, and in this context of the lands and division and the choices we make, the first point I would make out to us is, point to us, is that this is a God-ordained difficult circumstance. He said in verse 24, for the thing is from me. So often we want to put things together or save things that maybe are just meant to be separated. And that's just the way it is. The longer you live, the more you see this. In families, in ministry, in business, in human governments. God raises up one, brings down another. He sends these people this way into Antioch of Syria, and he sends these people back to Cyprus and says, go get them. That's right there in the book of Acts. This is the human experience where we have difficult times, and we have God-ordained difficult situations, and we have to realize it's of the Lord. I was thinking about this for our own country and planet Earth. The last 21 years has been very massive of change for the human race. I mean, really, just go back to 9-11 and how it changed the world. The endless war in the Middle East, because there's always endless wars in the Middle East, just the escalation of it. And you look back now, now in hindsight, like, what, 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 what did it do? What was it all about? Do we even still know what it's all about? The Russians are in Syria. Israel bombs Syria. Iranians and Persians are building nukes. And Russians are helping them. And we're doing this with Israel. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on. 9-11 affected the whole planet tremendously. It, we, we have to take our shoes off when we get on a plane. Because one guy tried to light his shoe on fire on a plane years ago. And now it affects a billion people traveling around the, the world every year. You take your shoes off, Right? Because one guy, the result of 9-11, post-9-11, and the war on terror. Well, the rights we lost as American citizens, not to mention Euros as well, after, you know, the Patriot Act and all these things, these, these rights that our founding fathers set up, they eroded and changed. We do not have the same rights that we had as American citizens before 9-11. That's a fact. That's just a plain, simple fact. 
And so many institutions we trusted before 9-11, we don't trust since 9-11, and rightfully so, if that's going to upset you, there's at least some things legitimately you could be upset with. But don't let it upset you. But if you were, at least you have something to be upset about. And then, of course, the last three years and all that happened with COVID, how it affected our country, how it affected our state, how it affected the world, how it affected people in Europe, how it affected people in Russia, how it affected people in Africa, Asia, China, even to this day. So much has happened in the last 20 years of my life between being 41 and 62. It's, it's hard to believe what we've seen. Really, we could have never foreseen it, let alone all the liberal laws and just the advancement of things that are contrary to God's word in our society, uh, the invasion in the school system. It just it, the, uh, the, the insanity of it all is just mind-bending, to say for sure. But if you grew up underneath this and you're younger, like Generation Z, you would just think that's all you knew. So you would be desensitized and you wouldn't even understand what it once was like and that we're like a nation with bronze shields when we used to have gold shields. But that's not really the point of the study. Because this first point is about it's God-ordained. And nothing happens on planet Earth that God doesn't allow. And even the, the violence of our last election and the uncertainty of a future election, if anyone even trusts it, these are all things that God's allowed. And we need to be reminded of that tonight in October. We really do believe in the church. I mean, we're singing songs with Jack about Jesus and we're singing about God's faithfulness. We, got, we believe that Jesus is on the throne. And he allows things for the human race in our timeline. He allows things for people of different countries in their timeline. He allows things in our personal lives for his purposes in our timeline and in our regions and whatnot. And we need to just realize, like, it's of the Lord. The, this thing is from me. Ultimately, whether it's something you want to experience, fear experiencing, because even when Job, when Job lost everything in one day, all of his wealth, all of his family, he said two things. The thing I feared the most has come upon me. That everything. But then he said to his wife, can we not, we've accepted blessings from God, can we not accept adversity? See, he saw it as being from the Lord. It wasn't about the Sabaeans or the whirlwind that blew the roof off the house and killed his kids, like a tornado in Texas or something. It was ultimately about the Lord. Either we believe that God is on the throne and in control, or we don't. And if we believe he's going to raise us from the dead through faith in Jesus, we, or do we do well to make sure to never forget that he is on the throne? And since he knows the hairs on our head, we can know if it's a, something that affects just our world or our entire planet, we got to know that God's in control. So really, that perspective is super important to keep that in mind, because what can you do? Our, our, you know, you could blame the Saudi Arabians for 9-11. You could blame the terrorists for 9-11. You could blame George Bush for what we did in Iraq. You could blame the current president for our, our departure from Afghanistan and the debacle that that was. You can blame the doctor for not diagnosing your cancer. You can blame the governor for not letting you go to church. You can blame anybody for anything anytime you want to blame them. But ultimately, you've got to know that God's on the throne and he's in control. And it's of the Lord. This is a good thing. To me, this is a really good reminder because we've been through so much and who even knows where, where we're headed with the current recession a European deep recession headed for depression and an probably an expanding European war. I mean, the current war in Ukraine looks like a World War II war, right? See, when Europeans fight war, they go like this. You know, we're used to these terrorist wars that we've been fighting. The Euros, when they go to war, they just go through land. Russians, Ukrainians, and Eastern Europeans, they go like this. That's what's going on right now in Europe. And Russia mobilized 300,000 troops because they know how to fight that kind of war. 
You just throw more people out and you just move, you move the boundary. There's a lot of things that would be unstabling, uh, uh, unsettling. But if you know that the Lord's in control and on the throne, they don't unstabilize you. If you look and you say, oh my goodness, who's going to run the future, Rehoboam or Jeroboam? We're right on the border between Judah and uh, Ephraim. We ask our neighbor like Sam Coca, Sam, should we live in, you know, should we go to Ephraim and be under Jeroboam or should we go down here and be under Rehoboam? And your neighbor Sam goes, I don't know, they both don't look like good picks. That's the human experience. Presuming you even had the choice that you want to do that. This text, above all else, reminds us in a land of division where people in power are making their choices that affect everybody, we got to remember that God is in control and never lose sight of that, that the Lord is on the throne from the hairs on our head to the macro decisions that could affect the entire planet Earth. Because for all that we've been through in the last 20 years, we haven't really talked about nuclear war, and yet you can hardly read the news in the last month and not read about this nuclear potential with Russia, the U.S. response to nuclear war. I'm like, oh my goodness, we're so desensitized. We don't even blink when we're talking about going boom. But just know this, nobody can do anything without the Lord allowing it. Nobody pushes any buttons anywhere without the Lord having the final say. And you got to know that. The Lord is on the throne. He has been, will always be, and the vision of Daniel chapter 3 is all these mighty kings, the mountain of the Lord crushes them, and the kingdom's established. So we don't let our hearts be moved, but we have peace with God in our heart because we know that Christ is on the throne. And that's the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So I don't need to understand if there's integrity or corruption in the highest governments on planet Earth. I need to worry about is there integrity or corruption in the man I see in the mirror? That's what I, that's what I need to accept responsibility for. And, and stay focused on the things that are... My, God is on the throne. Because these are unpleasant chapters. But God is on the throne, and if we keep that perspective, no matter what we're facing, personally, within our family, within our region, within our nation, within planet Earth in 2022, moving toward 2023, if we just remember that God is on the throne, we know he's allowed it, there's a bigger picture, and we can trust him, and we can have peace. Because Jesus said to his followers, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. And the world is very unsettled right now. Whether they want power or trying to control money, the world is very unsettled. But of all the people that wake up on planet Earth, we're the people who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ can have peace, absolute peace, because of who he is and where he's at, on the throne, and he's not forgotten us, he's not on the far side of some faraway galaxy, unaware of your personal life, my personal life, what's going on in California, planet Earth, Costa Mesa, the human race. For this thing is from me. And if we look at all the events that have perplexed us and just say, ultimately, it's the Lord and he's doing something and he's allowing things a certain way, we can have peace. We'll let God run the universe and we'll just accept responsibility for our self-determination of what we allow our hearts to be moved toward or against with the king. Now, the second thing we see tonight, not only is it's God-ordained difficulties and situations, and we can have peace by keeping that in mind and keeping our eyes on him. He'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee, is what the prophet Isaiah said. But we, we get Jeroboam, and we have to look at Jeroboam because as we look at his failure, we look at the 
exhortation for our success. So verse 25 in chapter 12, it tells us what Jeroboam did. So as he became king in the north, he's like, I'm the king. I've got power. This is what I'm going to do. He built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice. And he made two calves of gold. See, he got advice, but these are not the same people that gave Rehoboam bad counsel. These are his own people giving him bad counsel. See, it's all bad counsel. The king asked advice, made two calves of gold. When you think of the book of Exodus, and the king made two calves of gold like Aaron did, you think, what, what is he thinking? And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem, because that's where the temple is, and the altar, and the holidays, and the feasts, and all that. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. So blasphemous. Verse 29. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. He made two places of false worship, primary places. Now, this thing became sin, a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, that's up by Lebanon in the north. He made shrines on the high places, and he made priests from every class of people. So instead of the priesthood just being Levites, he made them like, hey, you want to be a priest? Be a priest. You want to go in the ministry? Believe whatever you want to believe, do whatever you want to do? Just, yeah, just as long as you're politically faithful to me, like, you know how tyrannical kings are, just do what I say, and you're good, and you can be a priest. Who were not of the sons of the Levites, that's what he did. He, he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levites. He was making his own world, world religion based upon his political views and his political agenda. Verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifice on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests on the high place which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month in which he devised in his own heart. He ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifice on the altar and burnt incense. So he's just out of control. Now, he sets up altars to false gods and tells the people, the, the people of covenant, just like being in a, pa- a pulpit and telling people not to believe in Jesus, not to believe the Bible, not to believe in creation, not to believe in gender determined by God. Like, that's what it's like. That's what this is like. There's just recreating everything in your own mind, how you think God should be creating a God of your own mind. So a golden calf in the north, a golden calf down here will make false worship accessible, shrines here and there. Anyone can be the priesthood. Just pay your taxes and don't cause problems. That's how, that's how it works. That's, today I was reviewing the 50 most persecuted countries on planet Earth and the mission groups trying to reach them. And one of the organizations lists what is the primary source of oppression against Christians in these countries. We're talking like Afghanistan, Myanmar, Burma, just, you know, these kind of, I'm using old names and new names, but Indonesia, these kind of places. So, you know, Thousands of Christians persecuted, killed. Millions of Christians, you know, not a lot of education, not a lot of health care, not a lot of all kinds of things. These 50 most common countries. And it lists the primary reason what's attacking them. So it's like Islam, 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 totalitarianism, communism, totalitarianism, totalitarianism, corruption, Mexico, totalitarianism, Islam, Islam, Islam. The, the, yeah. It's, it's men who, or women who seize power and manipulate religion to control and keep power. I mean, if you go back to the Soviet Union under Stalin, Lenin, then Stalin, and Stalin and Khrushchev and all those guys, 
They, would, they had the state church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the, the archbishop of, so the archbishop of the Anglican Church would be like, he's like the Pope, you know, so you have the Pope, the Catholic Pope, Anglican is Archbishop of Canterbury, but the Metropolitan of uh, Moscow is like the Pope of the Russian state church, and those guys, sometimes they were persecuted by the communists, the Soviets, and sometimes they weren't, but always Stalin, and the czars did this before Stalin, but you make sure that that guy's a political person, does whatever you tell him to do, and then all the people who follow religion just follow him. So if he says Stalin's a good guy, he's a good guy. If they say ignore that we're starving the Ukrainians in the 20s and the famine, hey, just ignore that because Stalin's a good guy and we can trust him. That's what they do. They redefine religion to serve them, and they might even make their own new holidays. Here in America, you know, we have new holidays. <laughs> well, who even knows what holidays we'll have before we get to 80 or 90, 2041, 2051? These people that hate God, they just create new holidays. They, they claim these. They, they take this and says that's ours. They take that and says it's ours. Oh, we're going to claim this month. We're going to do this and that. That's what they do. But we shouldn't be moved because God's allowed it. God's allowed it. And you say, well, okay, like that's your holiday. Mine's still, you know, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacle, Christmas, Easter. And the first three are just shadows of things to come. And yeah, 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 Christmas was a pagan holiday. And, you know, Augustine did this. But, you know, we still celebrate the birth of Jesus. That's what I celebrate. Yeah, and Easter, yep, fertility, yep, you want to worship rabbits, having more rabbits, good for you. But we celebrate Jesus in an empty tomb, good for us. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing's pure. So, yeah, we grew up celebrating who discovered America, and now it's something else. They just... You tear down monuments of people who did good stuff, and you're going to replace them with monuments of people who promote evil. That's what's going on. So is there anything new under the sun? God's allowed it. You have peace in your heart. You don't let it unsettle you. So we look at Jeroboam and go like, this really is what Solomon said. There's nothing new under the sun. This, this is like, we see this. The communists came to power the, in China. and Well, they did it in China. Mao Zedong did it. But Stalin definitely did it. Burn all the books, change the thinking, rewrite history. That's what you do. That's what tyrants do. It's like tyranny. It's tyranny 101, or Marxism, as they teach it in the public schools in China. You just redefine it. That's what Jeroboam did, and you make it religious. That's what Jeroboam did. So, of course, there's a warning for us. Don't follow the religion of Jeroboam, which we pretty much all know what the application is. Anything other than the word of God is a final authority in America right now, coming from the pulpits or synagogues or mosques or shrines or temples, is the religion of Jeroboam. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Have you not read how he made them? We're created with purpose. How he made them male and female. We're created with clear gender. And how the two become one in marriage, male and female. Like, it's all there. Anything against that is just religion of Jeroboam. I think we know that. Anyone listen to me? If you don't, you should. Because the religion of Jeroboam has a bad ending. It's like golden cows. It's never going to be a good ending. But this is the thing I thought about, and this is an application for us before we get to Rehoboam. One key positive that we got to take from Jeroboam, that we got to learn from it. This man, remember, this man, we didn't read it, but this man, when we went verse by verse, we did, was offered by God the keys to the kingdom. God offered this man the same chance he gave any other king to obey the word of God, to seek the priest, read the scriptures, heed the voice of the prophets, and do good and do right. This man could have woken up every morning and said the Shema like a good Hebrew would, as described in the law of God. 
He could have got up and said to his wife and his servants, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. And you know, may you find his favor. He, he could have gone through the fields of the 10 tribes saying, the Lord bless this and God, we acknowledge you, the provider and the giver of all things. He could have done all that. And he could have, when it came to the three feasts where everyone would go down to Jerusalem, he could have said, you know, I'm going to trust God because God made me the king. And he told us in his word, you know, to celebrate the feast. So I can let the people go celebrate the feast and just trust that they're self-determined. If they want to go to that church, they're going to go to that church. If they want to move to Texas, they're going to move to Texas. But I'm not going to try and control them. We're going to be secure in our calling. We're going to be secure in our faith. We're going to be secure in the promises. We're going to be secure in the standards of what's right and wrong. And we're going to serve like King David did. We're going to shepherd God's people because he sees them like sheep. As Jack even led us in worship tonight, referring to us as sheep because we are. He could have made himself a great shepherd for the northern tribes. See, division was of the Lord. There was no choice in that. But what each king chose to do and what every citizen chose to do under that was self-determined. See, that's the key. He could have been the best king ever of 10 tribes under a divided kingdom. He could have been. He could have been. But he chose other than that. See, it says in verse 26, he said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. And that was his great fear. What if the people go and they turn against me and they take my life? See, he got all worked up and worried by all these scenarios. For him, the glass was half empty. And if you see a half empty glass, for sure it's going to be spilt over and nothing will be left. But if you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, if we're looking unto him who has accomplished our redemption, if you're looking unto his promises, his promised return, that he's given us to all things pertaining to life and godliness, and our life is in his hands, and the days were fashioned for us, when yet there's none of them, David, Psalm 139. If you see that, then you're secure. And you just do the right thing. See, Josiah, at 39, he did all the right things, and he died in battle. But he died in battle with peace in his heart and integrity in his character. When you see with unbelief, and when you see without trusting God, and when you are disobedient to the Lord, and you, you become judge and jury of God's word instead of God's word judging us, we become Jeroboam, and we start recreating religion in our own mind. We stumble other people, and he's a king, so he stumbled a lot of people. And before you know it, you're putting up golden caps and saying, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what happens. When you're, you say in your heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. When we're moved by fear and uncertainty and insecurity, it's always going to be a bad ending. But when we're moved by faith and confidence with an attitude of faith in the promises of God, we're, 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 not, we're just going to keep going forward in faith. We're going to trust in the Lord. No matter, where, no matter what time zone certain people live in today around the planet, in these 50 countries I studied today, There are people that are waking up with faith and confidence in the Lord, in the call in their life, in the purpose of their life, who are going to redeem every moment of their life unto Jesus Christ, and they're completely sold out, whether in Sudan, Mauritania, uh, Nigeria, or Colombia, or anywhere else. Those are the people that we want to be. We're not moved by the fear of, what if they do this, and what if they do that, and what if this and that and everything else? Life is so short as a vapor. We need a healthy attitude of faith in Jesus and his word and his promises. And we know faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we just got to take in more scripture. Yeah, the cup is half full, but if you're taking in the scriptures and spending time with Jesus, man, it's, it's filling up. 
But if you're rebelling and you're in disobedience and you're in unbelief and you're moved by fear and anxiety of men, it, you're just, that cup's half full and what you got's about to spill because you're just, you're just, well, as a man or woman thinketh, so they become. So I definitely tell you, see a half cup of water being filled up by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, get your hustle on and fill the water pot so he can turn it to wine and make it something special. That's what I'm talking about. Man, Jeroboam could have been great. Instead, he gets rebuked by the man of God, has his hand frozen, then has it returned to him when he begs for mercy. Then he has a sick son who is struck down by the Lord, and he loses his son, and all Israel mourns for his son. And then God says, because you've done more evil than anyone before you, you've done more evil than anyone before you, you're going to be cut off, your descendants are going to be cut off, and no one's going to remember you, except that he's in the word of God to remind us that people that shouldn't be remembered sometimes should be, so we know not to become those people. It could have been so great. Now, Rehoboam is a little different. Rehoboam's a little different. So Jeroboam was, was unbelief and a fearful heart, and he, he just is all the wrong attitude, the wrong perspective, insecurity. He had to control people. He, didn't, he couldn't just say they're, they're God's sheep like David said. He just couldn't let them go and just say, hey, God bless you. He couldn't be that kind of person. No, he's going to control them, and he's going to be moved by fear of not having control over them. Instead of building bridges, he could have built bridges with Rehoboam. Hey, let's be good. I'm gonna, people want to come down and have a holiday. Instead of building bridges, or even just at least copacetically getting along, he just burnt bridges and he just created a whole new religion to his own demise and disaster. Now, Rehoboam in verse 21 of chapter 14, so we go forward a little bit and we get the details on Rehoboam, and we'll read this text and then we'll wrap it up tonight with Rehoboam and lessons from Rehoboam, his big mistake and what we could do to avoid that. So verse 21 of chapter 14, after we're told that Jeroboam lived 22 years and it was not good, then we get Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. So 58. Uh, a lot of people in the 50s right here in this church. 58. The city which the Lord had chosen, Jerusalem, out of all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama an Anamitess. So Solomon's first wife was a Canaanitess. Before he married Pharaoh's daughter, he married this woman and had Rehoboam. This is his firstborn son. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, the tribe of Judah, and they provoked him, the Lord, to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. It got worse under Rehoboam, more than their fathers had done, like just just worse and worse and worse, a downward spiral. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill under every green tree. And they're also perverted persons. So these are the gay uh, prostitutes. They, they did according... Now, previously, there was other prostitution before that under Solomon. We're not told the perverted guys were there, the Kadeshis, but here we're told that uh, uh, you know, Kadesh, the Kadesh were involved in open male prostitution on the hills. And the, this translated English perverted persons in the land. Look what it says. They did according to all the abominations of the nations, that's the Canaanites, which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So Israel now has become worse as a people of covenant than the people who are to be wiped off the planet because of their sins. They're doing worse. Jesus said, if salt loses its flavor, what is it good for? It's good for nothing. If the church acts like the world, it loses its flavor and it's good for nothing. But we're to be salt and light. Verse 25, and it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishaka, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He, he took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in, in, um, 
in their place and committed them to the hands of the captain of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord and the guards carried them and they brought them back into the guard room. Basically, they went in and out of the safe every day. Then we read, now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and he is replaced by his son Abijam. So these are the details of Rehoboam's life. Now we got all that stuff of Jeroboam in the north. Now Rehoboam, it's similar. He built the place, he allowed the altars and these false places. And he allowed this, uh, the gay prostitution, probably most likely the regular prostitution. It was all associated with false religions too. They didn't just do sexual immorality. They did it in relation to their gods and their deities that they worshiped in conjunction with that. And then he lost the gold shields. In fact, he lost everything. He lost the gold shields. That he, he lost his dad's treasure. He lost the Lord's treasure. He lost everything. David, his grandfather. Isn't that an amazing thought? David was his grandfather. The great king David was his grandfather. And remember what grandfather David did before he stepped into eternity? He gathered all of his wealth from the labors and the battles that he fought and everything he did, man, David had a tough life, but he had fiber and character. And he gave all that wealth to Solomon for the building of the temple. Then after Solomon built the temple, he brought all the extra wealth into the temple to allow furtherance and expansion of the kingdom once he was gone. But the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the spirit of God and the power of God is, is, has its own freedom in every generation. Each generation has to determine what they really want with the Lord as each individual does. And in the case of Rehoboam, he'll be forever remembered as the king who lost everything. He's the grandson, he lost it all. He lost it all. All that David lived for or acquired in his battles against Edomites, the Syrians and the, the, the Philistines, all that was dedicated to the Lord when it's no longer the Lord's, it's just temporal wealth that just gets redistributed by people who steal wealth from one another on planet Earth. It's the human experience. And it all got redistributed. Pharaoh came, took, 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 took. So here's something interesting. Jeroboam's family was cut off. His sins had his family cut off, and he lost his family, the legacy, everybody. No descendants within a few generations. Rehoboam had the safety net because he's a descendant of David, so his, his generations will continue just because God's made that promise. But he lost all the money. He lost all the wealth. Jeroboam's disobedience was moved by fear and control into false religion. Rehoboam's failure was really moved by indifference, compromise, and ineptitude. See, he didn't deal with things that needed to be dealt with. His dad had lowered the bar, and he had the chance to raise the bar. And he said, like, well, okay, Joey, like, how are you so sure you could have? Because Josiah did, and so did Hezekiah. For hundreds of years, hundreds of years, good Hebrews, when they went to Jerusalem three times a year to go to the feast, they walked Kidron Valley like this and that. If you've ever been to Israel, you can picture it like this. And there they are. There, there's the tents for the gay prostitutes and the regular prostitutes and all the bad stuff going on in Israel that no one wants to talk about. And they walked by and like, Dad, you, what's up with that? It takes a real woman of God, a real man of God with conviction and character to say, you know, no, not, not on my watch. No. 
That is never acceptable. It's never going to be acceptable. And no matter how acceptable these people want it to be, or my counselors, or my dad's counselors, that will never be acceptable because I'm reading the scriptures right now, and I know in the law of God that is never under any circumstance acceptable. And it just takes someone who's got courage, conviction, character, and integrity to stand up and say, no, that's not going to happen. So maybe we can't change bad laws in our country, but we can certainly pray for good things to happen. We can be part of the solution or through silence and compromise and ineptitude or indifference. We can just be part of the problem. And you say, how will we know? Well, you'll know on the day of the Lord, won't you? And won't I? Oh, we'll know. We will know. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, because we must all appear before his judgment seat, we persuade men to repent and trust in Jesus. We will all give an account, not just for what we say, every idle word, but the motives and intents and the thoughts of the heart. That is so sobering. So even if you don't take months of your life to walk for hundreds of miles to pray against the darkness you see descending on the land, like I did in 2008, and many of you prayed for me while I did, so thank you. I got up on election day in 2008. Hannah dropped me off at 56th Street. I touched the water in Jesus' name, and I walked 28 miles the length of Orange County and interceded for my county, this state, and our country on election day 2008. And I came back home. Brian Jameson picked me up, came back here. Hannah told me she was harassed by her peers at the, at the voting booth within where they shouldn't be legally. They're harassing her because they, she wasn't going to vote how they want her to vote. And I was like, well, that's just the America you get. I got a different one, but I'll be praying for you and yours. I came here and I taught a Bible study that Tuesday night, Election Day, 2008. See, something the Lord showed me about that election. I thought I was praying against principalities and powers in California. All that was going on. And for my children's future and my children's children's future. And I was. But looking at planet Earth right now, I realized I was fighting a much bigger battle than just three corrupt judges at the state court of appeals or corrupt people in corrupt places. It's a spiritual battle. And the Lord's allowed what's happened to this planet in 2022. And to some degree, it's terrifying. But you know what? I haven't stopped praying. I haven't stopped praying for the lost. We haven't stopped giving for the lost. You haven't stopped praying for the lost. We haven't stopped giving for missions. We're giving more now than we've ever given before. We're about the Father's business. We're moving mountains in prayer. We're not, we can't move these tents and we can't move these shrines that others have built, but we can definitely make sure they don't rule and reign in our hearts. And we can definitely make sure that in our prayers life, in our personal life, and the voice that we have of truth, that we don't capitulate and surrender truth for the degeneration of our culture and falsehood. That's what we can do. That's why I look at it. You know, when I did that prayer walk, the Lord's like, you're, you're good. It's all good. You can go home now. I was in the grapevine. I was like, Lord. And I was like, I finished that last walk that day by Maricopa. I was going to go to Sacramento. I was like, I was like Forrest Gump, man. I was walking, walking, walking. I just stopped at a phone booth on the side of the road. North of Maricopa. I was like, well, I guess I'm done. I turned around. I didn't have all the people Forrest Gump had in the movie behind him when he was running across the country. I turned around. Like, and I called Alex and Jeff Thompson. They were in a car back at Maricopa. They came and picked me up. I fell asleep on the way home, and that was it. And then I prayed on election day. We do what we can. We do what we can. And you see, the thing was, Rehoboam could have done more than what he did. But he, he was a coward. And he, he compromised the, the, the truth in his land. He compromised what was right with religion, if you will, in his land. And in the end, he went from gold shields to bronze shields. 
The shields he got is what he deserved. He didn't upgrade the kingdom. I was telling Sam when I mentioned after service Tuesday night, I was like, you know, what do you do with gold shields? How do you upgrade gold shields? You put the precious jewels in them. You put the diamonds and the rubies that your dad had in them. That's what you do. But it's not about the temporal wealth. It's about the eternal wealth in your heart of who you are as a man or woman that that represents that. But when your heart's bronze with the Lord and your grandfather was gold, then that's it. It's gone. You've been plundered, but you did it to yourself. And that's what happened. So the great lesson for us is to be obedient and to, to have courage and conviction and character and not dumb down our conviction based upon the word of God because all around us there's tabernacles and booths that we have no control over that people in power continue to wreck for killing babies or doing perversion. What are you going to do? We're going to look to Jesus because God's allowed it. We're going to look to Jesus and in whatever he's allowed us to be a part of, we're going to see things through the eyes of faith, unlike Rehoboam, through the eyes of fear. And we're going to be men and women of conviction and character in our hearts and in our minds. And we're going to stand for what's true, just, noble, praiseworthy, and honorable for the Lord until the day of the Lord. That's what we're going to do. And if we get to be a part of change, well, we are a part of change. Good for us. It'll all be made known in eternity. Rehoboam and Jeroboam are long gone, just like the kings that rule over us now will be, and so will we. So the real issue is having peace in our hearts because we know God's in control. The real issue is having an attitude of faith and con- attitude of faith and confidence, security coming from the promises of the Lord. And the real issue is being a person of conviction and character with obedience and holding fast, having done all stood and stand in Jesus' name.